Joe Master G. James, Master Joe James. G. Good morning. Good morning. Cheers. Cheers. Give you a little morning. Cheers. Cheers. All right. We've got the YFYI behind us. Um, you originally came up with um, with Yoga for Your Intellect, um, or at least I heard it from you. And yeah. And actually, that was one of the first things next to an actual yoga class. Those two combined probably mm. were the things that that and really what it really was yoga for your intellect. That phrase that just um, it was like a laser beam. I was like, I need to go figure out what that is. Where did you come up with the term yoga for your intellect? Um, while talking one day at the ranch where we met uh, in Malibu. It was just a thought that occurred about how to explain what Vedanta is. So, uh, as you know, Vedanta is uh, the study of, of ancient Indian philosophy. And within that philosophy, there are three classical yogas, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, jnana yoga. Karma yoga for the body and action. Bhakti yoga for the heart, for our emotional life, as it were. And jnana yoga for the intellect. So the kind of study and teaching that we do that, um, that I've learned at Vedanta Academy with, with our teacher, Swami Parthasarathy, is called Jnana Yoga. So Jnana Yoga is, is actually the yoga that we do when we study and reflect uh, upon this philosophy. But it just came to me one day as how to talk about it in, a, in, a, in an English way that makes sense. So it is yoga using the intellect. So... Yoga for the intellect just popped up. I, I honestly don't know where it came from. It came from the ether. Okay, and then what? Uh, and uh, we're both fans of Alan Watts, and, mm. and I th we actually just recently, I guess, rediscovered. Maybe it was in our in your subconscious, but yeah, uh, he had talked about intellectual yoga. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Where was that? We were listening to the pot, uh, Mark Watts. Movie. Yeah, Mark Watts, his, his yeah. son, talking about it. Yeah, he uh, mentioned, he said, yeah, Alan had a thing about intellectual yoga. And we were both so excited. We were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's it, man. Alan said the same thing. Right. But and that's what it is. I mean, it's that's what it is. You know, the the one of the, the law of attachment, one of the real principal core ideas of Vedanta is as you think, so you become. Hmm. So where are our thoughts? This is, this is really a crucial idea. And if our thoughts are on our bank balance and our stuff, we're materialistic. You know, if, if it's just that, obviously we need to pay attention to all these things somewhat. But if we're completely preoccupied with our external stuff, that's materialism. If we're constantly preoccupied with our body, how much do I weigh? What spots are there? What bumps are there? What bumps aren't there? What color is my hair? All that stuff then we're physical. That's a physical person. If our thoughts are all the time in our emotions and our, in our, our, our feelings, our uh, sort of that flowy stuff, then we're emotional people. If we're constantly trying to figure out what is dark matter and how does it align with this and that, you know, nothing wrong. I mean, these are cool, interesting intellectual puzzles, but if we're preoccupied with that, we're intellectuals. Likewise, if we're focused on the truth, if we're focused on the reality, if we're focused on the spirit, the consciousness, the self within us, if we're focused on our inner being, our true being, we're spiritual people. So the question is, where are your thoughts? So yoga for your intellect is the uh, conscious exercise of putting our thoughts on divinity, on God, or whatever you want to call it, the self within not all the time. I mean, sometimes you got to do your taxes and sometimes you, you need to exercise your body. And, and it's not that it, it's, uh, you know, trying to be 24 hours in that state. But the same way we would, we would take up a physical yoga practice every day, uh, what you and I were doing at the ranch in Malibu and what we do all the time is, is consciously engage in yoga for your intellect, meaning taking our thoughts away from the world, putting them on the self within, and that's what it is. And this is classical. This is jnana yoga in Vedanta, but we just coined something, yoga for your intellect. Uh, the way I've, mm. I've described it before is yoga for the intellect is in the same way. That, and, and I did want to ask you for, for people that might be wondering, what about hatha yoga? What about raja yoga? Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the three classical yogas. Um, but and I'll, I'll, the, the reason I'm asking is because I'll talk about hatha yoga in a second, but... What about those questions that you get 
um, about, mm, I guess, newer yogas. So yoga is taken from the Sanskrit yuj. Yuj means to connect, to yoke, uh, to join, to bind. So you would yoke your your bull to your bullock cart, you know, ancient India, that kind of thing. You'd connect it, which implies there's a separation. You don't have to connect something that's not separated, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that there is a need for yoga means that we have a sense of separation. There's a sense of dissatisfaction, right? And, and the whole, all the yogas, the classical yogas, really any yoga, if it's truly a yoga, is all about doing that connection, getting that connection reestablished. Mm. Um, philosophically, it could be that there was never actually a separation. It might just be all in our heads, but that's a different discussion. But for those of us who have, we will a, have that. We yeah, will. We'll do will it. I'm, I'm sure we will. Yeah. So for those of us who have that dissatisfaction, that sense of segregation from our true nature or from the totality, from our larger self, we need some some vehicles. And these yogas are different vehicles. That's it. Some are sports cars. Some are normal. You know, I don't know, family sedans. <laughs> some are. Bullet carts. It depends on what your capacity is to drive. Uh, which type of yoga? So the 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 four yogas. I I, I did say three, but that Swami has a chapter. Swami Parsarthi, his book Vedanta Treatise, which was so good, so good, and and the first book that you found in your room at the ranch that day uh, talks about four yogas. There's a chapter called the four yogas, and Hatha Yoga is one of them. So Hatha is the yoga of compulsion. Mm -hmm. So it is the yoga of externally forced discipline on our lives to basically make us start thinking. So to make us be like, okay, why am I forcing myself into this position? You know, in a sense, to get us to start functioning, to get us to start activating our thoughts and our feelings uh, on a deeper level. Um, so it's there, and it's it's important. Obviously, also, Hatha Yoga is a great exercise physically. I mean, we do yoga every day at the ashram in India. I've been doing yoga for 25 years. It's a wonderful exercise. But uh, philosophically speaking, the when when there's a external compulsion put on your life uh, for the sake of disciplining yourself, calming your mind, being able to think and reflect and access the deeper devotional feelings, this is Hatha Yoga. On top of that is karma, bhakti, jnana, which we talked about. Since then, there have been all kinds of yogas. You know, there's goat yoga. I saw yeah. we're, we're sitting here in Santa Monica, the, the headquarters of all the newfangled yogas of the world. You know, there's beer yoga. There's all kinds of yogas out there. You walk down the beach here and you'll see some pretty interesting new copyrighted yogas. Uh, so... I don't know, but they're not classical. They're not time-tested, right? The the Vedanta's 5,000-year-old time-tested yoga in the mm -hmm. sense you have a body that perceives and acts. You need to figure out how to use that in a yogic way. That's karma yoga. In other words, how to act in an unselfish way. This is karma yoga. Bhakti yoga is you have feelings, you have emotions. What to do with them? Are we just to be caught up in possessiveness and attachment and, you know, these kind of uh, grasping emotions? Or should we try to broaden our emotions to make ourselves more universal, more more loving, more socially conscious, right? That's, that's bhakti yoga. And jnana yoga, as we said, is we can spend our whole life with this powerful intellect that we have just, you know, figuring out how to get one step ahead of everybody else all the time. Or we can use that powerful ability to think, to reason, to judge, to decide, to segregate and find out what's real and what's unreal. What's the reality? What's the unreality? Who am I really? That's jnana yoga. So you ask me, what do I think? When I hear all these new yogas, I, I'm, I just, okay. You know, I, I, tr I just stick with the classical yogas because they're, they're time tested and, and they're, they're verified. And, and frankly, like, those four yogas are more than enough to try to to uh, <laughs> to master in one life. I love that there are. It's within Vedanta. There's the concept of swadharma, your nature, and getting in tune with your nature. There's 
mm. the the four yogas, the three uh, spiritual yogas, that it's it also is kind of like your nature. It's not just everyone sit in the pew, and this is the one route to to union with with God. But there's there your nature might take you to a bhakti path or a jnana path. I think the or a really a combination of all three. Very true. The you mentioned discipline. I think that that uh, that's where I've that's where I've often connected the yoga for your intellect with uh, with the yoga that we all know from TV or mm. from the studio mm. and uh, the hip part of town. And that's the mention or discipline. The one co the commonality between all of the world's disciplines and all the historical uh, philosophies, religions, disciplines is. The only commonality is discipline, and and I think that that's a interesting alignment of hatha yogas. It's a discipline. Mm. It's a contortion of your body, but it'll get you to think. I need it. Get you to focus on what I'm doing right now, and to think why am I doing this, and to mm. go into it each day knowing, okay, mm. this is a mm. discipline mm. for this purpose of of knowing the body union with the body mm. uh, similar to to um, yana yoga or vedanta of this discipline i think about this all the time that right about two months into covid um, there's a secretary of health uh, reading this memo maybe you remember this because mm. it made a bunch of uh, newsreels but reading this memo saying that um, do not touch your face yeah and so she's reading off all of these things, but the big, like the three big things going forward is do not touch your face. Yeah. And as she's turning the page, she's struggling for a second, licks her finger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is on, you know, national yeah. Yeah. TV. It's tough, man. You gotta, you know. Yeah, exactly. It, it is tough. <laughs> but it was such a highlight of, we do not know what we're doing. Yeah. 99.9% .9 of the time, we have no idea what we're doing mm -hmm. why we're doing it mm -hmm. you could be on national tv saying advising guiding others and completely be remiss yourself to listen to your own advice mm. and i think about that all the time because it is just that's how we naturally operate anyone can use a language and guidance and advice and say there is something to do but then when we catalog do we even know what we're doing mm. or why we're doing it mm. it's um it's kind of ridiculous how how few of us have answers so that is where um i want to get into vedanta is uh to know what and why we're doing what we do as humans well i mean one thing to jump in is um you said rightly is to get us to focus so what separates us from our true nature, what separates us from our original state of satisfaction, of stillness, is the noise of our mind, is thoughts. Every one of these philosophies and, and religions talk about it. So what you, when you focus, there's a stillness. That focus has stillness in it. It's not maybe the ultimate, but it's much more still and peaceful and quiet um, and powerful than just noise, right? So you're right to say that the yogas are all about trying to give us a focus. And the intellect is that which enables us to be able to focus. So even in the, the Yoga Sutras, which is the, the main text about from which they take all of the asanas from you know yoga practices and all the studios down the street here, the Yoga Sutras by Patanjali, uh, thousands of years old, the second, the second mantra, the second, the second verse of that book defines yoga as yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. So chitta is the mind stuff. Vritti is fluctuations, agitations. Nirodha is cessation. So I had a professor back in college um, in the 90s who said uh, yoga is when your chitta vrittis are niroded, which is terrible. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to do to Sanskrit, but um, it was, he's right. When the when the when the vrittis in your mind are are ceased, when your agitations are stilled, that's yoga. Not whether you're sitting with your legs a certain way or not a certain way, 
Yeah. Not if you're sitting in front of a Vedanta book, reading a Vedanta book. Is your mind still or not? If it is still or not, you are in your original nature. Or you're on your way to your original nature. To, to be able to see your true being, the, the, the lake has to be still. Mm. Uh, the lake of your mind, right? So that's all of these yogas are trying to bring about that state and you rightly mentioned focus as a, as a key, perhaps the key um, stilling function that the intellect brings to the mind, which is what this is all about, yoga for your intellect. Speaking of what this is all about, what is the, um, could you give us a little background on Vedanta, what Vedanta is? So Vedanta is taken from two words, Veda, Anta. Veda means knowledge in Sanskrit. Anta means end. The Vedas are these voluminous texts of knowledge of, of life. It's, it's all kinds of knowledge. It's not just f uh, philosophical knowledge. All kinds of things are much more than I know it, what's in there. I haven't read all of the Vedas, but there are these four ancient textbooks that were originally orally passed down thousands and thousands of years ago and originally recorded in the Himalayas. Um, again, some of them are, the first written recordings, are, some of them are 5,000 years old. Um, That's when they're written, so. When they're written, so God the world, knows yeah, how long version. it's been passed on, and it's, it's these major textbooks about just knowledge, about life. Anta means end. So at the end of the Vedas are these discussions between a master and a student one-to-one, -one, uh, called Upanishads. Um, the Upanishads are these conversations, usually some of them shorter, some of them very short, some of them a bit longer. But they're conversations one-to-one -one between an enlightened master and a student or a group of students. And it's pure philosophy, these Upanishads, very high level, non-compromising, only talking about the absolute truth, extremely dense, concentrated philosophy about reality, about the truth, about what you really are, right? So that, that's literally when we say Vedanta, we're talking about the Upanishads, those books, those conversations, which are kept at the end of the Vedas. So it's literally the knowledge at the end of the Vedas. Now, um, over time, those concentrated texts, those concentrated uh, conversations between the enlightened masters and their students were further explained and commentated upon and elaborated upon over this 5,000-year-old wisdom tradition, which we now refer to in total as Vedanta. For example, uh, we're both students of the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is, I don't know, 2,000 years old, roughly depends, 2,500 years old. So when Krishna taught the soldier Arjuna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra in the Bhagavad Gita, he was quoting the Upanishads. Some of the verses in the Bhagavad Gita are direct lifts from the Upanishads. He was very, very familiar, obviously, with the Upanishads and many teachers before him. So the Gita is Vedanta also, right? And then so many other teachers. And fast forward to modern day, our guru Swami Parthasarathy has written a book called Vedanta Treatise, The Eternities which is a compendium of the entire wisdom tradition, and that also is Vedanta. So when we talk about Vedanta, we're talking about this entire wisdom tradition going from the Upanishads through many other texts. I just picked a, a couple of landmarks along the way. There's thousands of texts, thousands of masters. There's a galaxy of, of sages and saints who have passed this knowledge down for 5,000 years. And that entire wisdom tradition is called Vedanta. And, you know, it's it's... It's everything from practical knowledge of life and living, how to, how to live your life practically, all the way up to how to reach the ultimate spiritual enlightenment. Uh, and I'll, it is all of those things, I'll, but I'd also call out that it's not, it's not a religion. Mm. Um, I think Eastern religions get called religions, but they're <clears throat> more closely aligned to, honestly, uh, Western psychotherapies than they're, close, than they're aligned to, to religions. There is no... Um, should should not. There is no. I'd say they're they're close. They're most they're more closely aligned to science. Mm. Yeah, science is not dogmatic. It's not. Uh, 
science is not limited to any time and place, to any people, to any particular uh, beliefs or not. Science is a compendium of understanding about the external world, largely. I mean, of course, it looks at our physical bodies and stuff, but in terms of the true subjective life that we are all living, that there's a science for understanding our, the subjective side of life. Mm-hmm. Life is a series of experiences. This is one of the first discriminations Vedanta makes. Yeah. Anubhava dara, right? It's a study of life. What is life? Anubhava dara in Sanskrit means a stream of experiences. This is like the first thing we start with. And you're like, okay, correct. My life is a bunch of experiences. I'm having this experience now. Later we'll be doing something else, then something else. All of this moving rapidly is this thing called my life. So... Within that experience, there's two parts, you and the world, subject and object. Science is focused on the external side, how the world works, how to better the world, how to make the world more functional, how to create these microphones and screens and Zoom and technology and all the the vaccines and whatever's going on is all external science. It's amazing, but we should not completely neglect the you side of life. And there, there's a scientific way to understand what is the you side of life. What's the subject? What, is, what do we bring to that? What does the you side bring to the experience? And then how do the, to that then build our lives? That science, that subjective science is Vedanta. It's scientific in the sense it is, uh, it is time-tested. It is uh, experimented upon. It's been, and you are encouraged to experiment upon it. It's not just like, just gulp it, son. You know, just believe this because some old book said it. No. Right, no. I, I, one of the fundamental anchors in, in the perspective is to question everything. Um, if not the fundamental anchor in an introduction to a philosophy like this is to question everything, including anything that's being said. So anyone listening or watching this, question the hell out of anything that is being said. Oh, yeah. And uh, from the small to the big statements. But yeah, it is, it is, but what it is so interestingly not to a, to someone in the West is it is not, here's this place you got to be for this hour on Sundays. Mm. This These are the beliefs you have to have. You're part of the community. I mean, the Western approach to religion is, um, you get purged from the community if you don't believe these things. Excommunication. And obviously yeah. in the last yeah. 200 years, that's happened a lot less. But yeah. Yeah. the foundation of mm-hmm. Western religion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is purged from the community if you don't profess the same beliefs. Yeah. With Vedanta, and we'll get into the... the I, I want to uh, ask you about even the name. Um, there, It's just, it is like science. It's like here is... Here's this concept of gravity, Mm. but you can go about your day without knowing it. Mm. Mm. You can jump out of a two-story window not knowing that it exists, but Mm. it's going to be a law of philosophy, law of the universe, like a law of nature. And if you know it, then you're like, okay, do I want to jump out of this Mm. uh, two-story window? Um, Mm. Correct. It's it's also something to where I have found that... uh, for, for someone that's equally influenced by uh, Christianity and Vedanta, um, there's something interesting about Vedanta where once, you, once it starts to enter your intellect, <clears throat> you, you know, there's only a, a few set and settings for, for the physical yoga, hatha yoga. For the intellectual yoga, it kind of, you really can, I have noticed myself being like, okay, I can introduce this into 24 hours of my day mm. how i'm brushing my teeth mm. how i'm yeah. walking down the street yeah it's quite uh fascinating just how it is um and i think this is part of uh, the tradition this is nothing new but for me it's been uh pretty fascinating to see how many parts of life i mean every part of life i mean i don't really, there isn't a single part of life that i could think of where it doesn't uh still have a beneficial place these knowing this this science knowing these laws so this is the thing right like as we as we said a second ago life is a series of experiences uh subject and object the objects change the external world right now you're sitting and talking to me 
later on you're going to be sitting and talking to someone else i'm looking forward to that by the way that podcast after <laughs> after that you'll be sitting and talking to your family you'll be whatever it is uh you are common to all of it every experience you're there right so it seems like a, a very simple basic idea but we don't stop and reflect upon it enough right we completely ne neglect how I, how the, how the you is meeting everything. So, of course, it's, a, it's in every bit of your life because you are in every bit of your life. So, to neglect these laws of life and not understand them, as you rightly said, when we understand the laws of life, we just are able to function better. We're able to optimize our life. It's like a manual for living. You can uh, learn how to, you can read the manual for how to use all of this technology around us. And that will help you. Or you can take it out of the box, never look at the manual. Never look at the manual. And, and not realize what this can move this way and this and the, and, and you just, you're not able to optimize the use of it. So when you read the manual of life, which is Vedanta, uh, you're able to function better because you are in every experience that you're going to have and yet we neglect that completely and as you rightly said we go along in life just wondering we never even stop to wonder yeah Ooh. we never even question. question i mean that's the yeah just say uh, we're not encouraged that. to also oh god i mean it's with the western uh belief system like i said it's like whoa 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 if i start questioning you you sense this at six mm, at mm, nine mm, and by the time you're 12 you're like don't question yeah because on the other side of this is yeah. purging from the community prashnena prashnena is one of the great qualities of an ideal student it means questioning in vedanta in vedanta they lay out all these different qualities of of uh, in the gita and also in other texts like atma bodha and others he talks about some of the qualities of an ideal student you know uh, such as you have to have a sense of dissatisfaction. You have to have a yearning for liberation. You have to have devotion to your preceptor, to the teacher. You have to have not just like a, a, a student-professor relationship. There has to be a surrender that uh, my guru knows, you know, this idea. But prashnena is, is constantly repeated in various ways. It means questioning. you got to question. Um, and all of the Upanishads like we said at the beginning, which is the, the original Vedanta, are the student questioning the master. And the master doesn't get annoyed and say, just do what I say. You know, go back to uh, whatever, go back to your room. It, it's not like that. It, there's a sacredness to the questioning. So um, the ashram where, where I've studied so many years uh, with Swami Parthasar. And, and I will yeah, add, the yeah. answer is never, yeah. um, it's never, God works in mysterious ways. Good point. Yeah. It's never, the, yeah. yeah. The yeah. questions, what is, what is satisfying about that mm -hmm, dissatisfaction mm -hmm. with not knowing is... The answer is not, you can't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, sometimes, but it's more helpful than that. <laughs> it's, it, usually it's like you, you, you can't put it into words, but you have experienced it, or you can't experience it, or it's rarely just you can't know. Right. No, no, it's helpful, and, it, and often... Um, stimulates more questions so i was going to say the ashram where i've studied for years we have a three-year residential program uh seven days a week 365 vedanta all day long um i have seen entire classes go by with swamiji sitting there um answering questions where you know we've got verses to cover he's got a trip coming up to europe or australia or wherever he's going in three days and we're trying to get through this into this chapter so that the syllabus moves forward there is no rush there is no impatience there is no just okay okay answering quickly to try and get i've seen at that stage entire classes just go to questioning because it's sacred it's the exact opposite of just being force-fed some worldview that's or, that, being, you know, or being told by a professor like, hey, hey, okay, can we save the questions? I need to get through this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got a, we've got a test. Right. Yeah. And I, I need to impart this information rather mm, than mm. invest in the spirit of, of your questions questioning. and, and yeah. questioning. The, if if um, people are finding this interesting and you've stayed to this point in the video, then write write these two things down and the first being that life is a stream of experiences 
and within that stream you have a subject and an object uh, you have the subject and its environment mm-hmm. this is and this is this is going to be um, a template for any concept we discuss yeah. where it is so simple mm. it is uh, there's a reason it's lasted 5,000 years it is so simple mm-hmm. and having uh, quite the resurgence now because people are looking for these simple laws and manuals for a world that is changing so fast mm. things are getting weirder faster mm-hmm. and we're grasping for something that isn't changing or that yeah. allows for a um, yeah. a allows for a an improved mentality around a world that is changing so fast so you have this subject and the object and you can try to change the object to improve life to improve those experiences change the world change the environment anyone that's tried to do that i built a a company for five years trying mm-hmm. to change the world in the mm-hmm. Silicon Valley sense. And, and we got as about as far as you could get two, three, four years in, mm. and then ultimately realized, okay, changing the world is, hmm. I mean, it, any successful company uh, still has this, this arc of up and down. It is, yeah, it is wiped away by history, especially mm-hmm. in the technology space mm-hmm. within about 20 years, even though mm-hmm. they quote unquote, they're going to change the world. Mm-hmm. Very few people are saying Yahoo changed the world, mm-hmm. but the um, hmm. that that doesn't stop everyone from saying, "Okay, yes, let's change the world. Let's change the world." Mm-hmm. And Vedanta uh, says, "Okay, you could try to do that, and shit, go for it. Mm-hmm. Like, spend a couple decades trying to do that if you want. Go big, or, or yeah, go big, <laughs> or you can change yourself. Yeah, it's far easier. Yeah, and look inwards. Yeah, and that's um, to improve." Those, that stream of experiences and therefore to improve your life. Yeah. Second thing that I think is worth writing down. And not only your life. A, 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 yeah. v, Swami Vivekananda said, raise yourself, you raise the world. Mm. So it's not just that, that that could just to, so that people don't think we're just like, okay, forget the world, let it burn. I, I want to be peaceful. Yeah. The greatest thing that anyone can do for the world is to gain this knowledge for themselves, to gain their own self mastery. It seems counterintuitive, but it's the truth. If you have one person that's less overtaken by the constant ego, egoistic desires, constant selfish, lower uh, kind of motivations, and clarifies themselves, gets inspired by a higher purpose, they, they become like a like a lighthouse for others. So it's not just about uh, me being peaceful and letting the world be like that. But it's a, it's also a realistic understanding that the world is what it is. Swami Ramatirtha famously said, straightening the world is like straightening a dog's tail. Hmm. And so it'll be straight so long as you hold it. Yeah. <laughs> but you let it go. So, uh, yeah, that's a great, I think that's a great call out that anyone. And I th- in 2017, there was a study that proved that, that showed that uh, moods are as contagious as, as cold hmm. so it, it, so we're transmitting to those around us yeah, yeah, for sure. way more than we think for sure for sure, for sure. and uh and if moods are then improved mental states are the same well. ramatirtha said if you're if you're agitated if you're disturbed if you're upset quarantine yourself oh really <laughs> in 1902 lecturing in san francisco he said quarantine yourself segregate yourself remove yourself from the influencing society with your with your agitation that's so freaking smart because anyone has has had that experience with Mm. a spouse or a significant other where you're in a bad mood and you infect the room the car yeah the other person's in a bit and now you're dealing with something that you might have gotten over within 15 20 minutes yeah yeah you're dealing with it for three hours and then it's coming back to you and it's reverberating and everybody's caught in this horrible tornado he says quarantine yourself right likewise if you get up in the early morning which we recommend uh thoreau said in the early morning i bathe my intellect in the stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy of the bhagavad-gita this is what thoreau was doing at walden pond he wasn't just counting leaves you understand him and emerson and all those guys were studying the gita they were studying vedanta so if we get up in the morning and as the Buddhists say, polish our mirror. You know, we, we, we brush our intellect, uh, clean our intellect with these higher thoughts. 
then you come out of the, the door in a different person. You're interested in how can I help you? How can I serve you? You're less victimized by your own selfishness, by our own selfishness, our own egoness, and all that. It's, it's almost a byproduct of inspiration. It is. Inspiration just shakes all of that off. Hmm. Yeah, imagine everyone's walking around like that with satisfaction, with contentment, with gratitude. Imagine if everyone's grateful. Every, and we say, be grateful, make a gratitude list. That's correct, but how? You've got to get inspired and understand what you are, that you are that uh, higher being. Well, that in that second thing to write down, I was going to say, <clears throat> and one of the other, planing, you know, Vedanta is, is Sanskrit. So you hear it, and it is just, if you spoke Sanskrit, it would just be, it would be a plain language language. Uh, verbiage now we hear it and it sounds like this exotic thing but if you mm. translate it to um end of knowledge you're kind of like okay mm. that's mm. sounds like something significant mm. or end of the vedas if you knew what the vedas were or um i have heard uh one of my favorite definitions highest ideals mm. it's just like oh highest ideals instead of a exotic word that sounds like it's going to take 10 years to grasp or to get any benefit from if you heard hey i've got a, a simple list of the highest ideals mm-hmm. you can i man that's clickbait yeah. i would click on that just to look at it and see which applied to me it's a point and, yeah and the two that i would write down if um that uh, for folks that are listening <clears throat> if you find it interesting is first is question everything and swami parthasarathy says these two these are the two, two top things that any student can do or anyone interested in this can do um well not even anyone interested, even if you are very far in your journey mm-hmm. but question everything and then second to don't take anything for granted yeah so in that that gratefulness category it would be it is this uh gratitude in a yoga position you're mm-hmm. not used to to mm-hmm. where it's not just grateful for mm-hmm. good weather Mm. your dog the mm. things that you would naturally be grateful for mm. but it's actually that second ideal of don't take anything for granted that pushes you into territory where you're grateful for things that you wouldn't conventionally be grateful for correct and gratitude and desire cannot coexist oh interesting tell me more they okay. just if you're sitting there counting your blessings if you're sitting there in awe of the fact that you're conscious wow which is vedanta if you're sitting there in the early morning amazed at how does the sound hit my consciousness? Where did this consciousness come from in the first place? What are all the factors that allow me just to hear the sound of the bird outside or to see the, the words on the page in front of me? When you get into that, you're not sitting there desiring, you know, the next Tesla. And nothing wrong with the next Tesla. I mean, I'm all uh, about you know, it. You know, I'm. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I'm looking forward to. I know. But uh, you and I'm looking forward to it also, so we I, can take it surfing. Yeah, man. exactly. But, the, but, the, um, the truck. The truck. But nothing wrong, man. But in 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 a given moment, when we're when we're desiring, we're not aware of what we have, right? Mm-hmm. And so, being aware of of first of all, just on a material level, all that we have is is insane compared to. We've, everyone in this country has won the lottery, as far as I've, as, as Amen, yeah. materialistically speaking. We're all the 1%, you know? It's funny, all the protest against the 1%, but the protesters are sitting in North Face tents, you know, in Central Park and going out to get Starbucks. I mean, we're all the 1% compared to the rest of the world. Uh, so that just that's a fundamental gratitude, but even just the gratitude for the fact that you is... You know, I'm saying it that way on purpose. The fact that you exist, where does that existence itself come from? This is where Vedanta really functions. Um, You can't, you you just won't be victimized by your desires. You may thereafter have aims and ambitions and goals, and that's all fine. But you won't be enslaved by and victimized by these desires. And imagine a world where people aren't victimized by desires. Imagine we go surfing and everybody's out there to help other people get waves. Versus that one guy I was telling you about yesterday. He's just paddling around everybody, going to the top and snaking waves from everybody all day. It's just a different thing. Imagine everyone's going out to, into the world to say, okay, I, I definitely need my own shelter. I need food and my family needs medicine, whatever the things we need in life. And this isn't socialism. Nothing wrong with, with competition and everything. But 
to the to the to the extent that we're stepping over each other, destroying the planet, destroying all the creatures on the planet. This is just desire. What the world needs is more social consciousness, not more social work. If we are more socially conscious, which comes from unselfishness, which comes from less desire, then we don't we won't have the problems to fix in the first place. So anyway, it's a, yeah. there's a lot of of uh, applications. Yeah, the there's. There are a handful of knowledge nuclear bombs that uh, that I call it where you hear it and then you cannot unhear it. Mm. And that is that is knowledge. That is informed action. That's where you just know, oh, behind that door is something um, terrible. Behind mm. this door is something blissful. Well, you're still acting, but it's informed action. You're going to go through the door that is... Uh, that you know, that you now know with that knowledge um, is going to be the better door. The, but that concept of desire and, and gratitude cannot co- coexist. I haven't heard that before, but that's, mm. that is one of them. We'll talk about in this series a handful of these knowledge nuclear bombs. That, mm. And this is where, to what you're saying, it's, it's science. It, just question the hell out of it. Mm. Beat it up. Kick it. Uh, kick it around and see if that idea actually, if it can survive you questioning the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. And that type of statement of of desire and gratitude cannot coexist. That it would be hard to actually destroy that. I, I there's hmm. so many examples where a priori truth. Right. Right. Okay. So you mentioned Thoreau, and and this is just a a sidebar for for um, especially. a 19-year-old kid that might be watching this on YouTube. What is um, Thoreau and the Transcendentalists? Mm -hmm. We all came across it in Mm. seventh grade, eighth grade. Mm. But we had no idea what we're... Just like we had no idea when you're you're reading Shakespeare how great uh, that is. But but can you tell us about America's relationship with Vedanta in the past? That uh, Mm. Just a sidebar on Transcendentalism... Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, I, I, I think those were the first guys that, that had the Bhagavad Gita. I believe so. I think they, some of them translated it from German or something. I, but this is just my, my guess. Uh, and they used to call it the Bhagavad Gita. And they spelled it kind of 1800 style or whatever differently. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, Emerson, uh, Thoreau, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Elizabeth Browning, they were all sitting around in Concord, uh, having Bhagavad Gita group discussions and and reflecting upon this knowledge. Um, if you read Walt Whitman, it kind of looks like he he got he was influenced as well. And and in fact, Emerson wrote him a a letter famously saying, uh, "Hey, you stole you stole leaves of grass from the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> you know, I caught oh, you. Really? Yeah, you know." But uh, it's funny, you know, because in those days, like, it's a small world. Like, how many of these guys are even, it's like, you know. Um, But then, yeah, since then, there's been a steady stream of people that have been uh, influenced by the Vedic knowledge, by Vedanta. And was it called Vedanta, or is that? No, so Vedanta is a a word that, uh, quite frankly, uh, Ramatirtha, who I've mentioned, uh, came to America uh, in the turn of the 20th century, so... He died in 1906 or something, I think, around there. So a few years before that, he was traveling around uh, lecturing in San Francisco. And, and he really was was promoting the use of the word Vedanta to talk about this entire wisdom tradition. And What uh, words would people have used? I don't know, actually. I, I'm not sure. Maybe they would have spent said Hinduism or they would have said the, something Oriental. Eastern knowledge. Eastern knowledge. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. And, and Swamiji, our teacher, is really picked up on uh, that thread and and uh, titled his his magnum opus uh, Vedanta treatise to to highlight that word you know which was first printed in the 70s um, so he's been uh, our ashram is called Vedanta Academy um, vedantaworld.org Vedanta Life Institute my our institute is Vedanta Institute Houston so it it, it they they've really um, tried to re-emphasize that word. Um, but the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and many of these other texts, like I said, have been have been looked at by 
by lots of thinkers and scientists, um, of course, famously in the 60s, uh, all the beat guys and, and um, all these people um, were reading it. I mean, Tolstoy, um, Victor Hugo, you can see the influence on the European uh, philosophers, um, Immanuel Kant, uh, Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer Jung. said that Vedanta. Jung. Schopenhauer said that Vedanta w- was the solace of my life. It will be the solace of my death. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, um, quite a few of of Max Mueller. All of these guys have been have been reading and studying and reflecting upon Vedanta. It's deeply influential. As we round out this this episode, this first episode of the series, could you? talk about the central contribution like getting right into the heart of vedanta and talk about the central contribution of vedanta uh, philosophically contribution to who contribution to the world i think um and where i'm going with this is is around the equipments we're given Mm, mm, and mm. uh and to not take those for granted according to philosophy like vedanta yeah so Everybody talks about the need for concentration. Everybody talks about be in the moment, be in the present. We all know this. This is all be here now. Be here now. This is all in the in the ether. It's everywhere here now. But how to do it? The mechanism to concentrate. The mechanism to focus. The mechanism to be in the present. The mechanism to be mindful. All of these these things that are so hot right now. Ultimately, the mechanism even to meditate. All of these, this this the mechanism for success. The mechanism for consistency. All of the business themes that we talk about. The mechanism to be stress-free. The mechanism to have harmonious relationships. All of the things that all the, the self-help gurus are talking about, very few of them actually get down to the mechanism. The mechanism for how to paddle into a big wave and stay low and go and make it instead of lose yourself and wipe out. The mechanism for any of these goals is the human intellect, is the buddhi. This is, this is Vedanta. I mean, Vedanta is all about development of the intellect, whether it's just from how to enjoy your dinner, how to make your dinner, how to drive your car, like that, all the way up to how to reach single-pointed meditation and the state of self-realization. That mechanism of the intellect is is absolutely unique uh, to Vedanta. It's there in all of the other traditions, but it's so it's so highlighted in Vedanta. Uh, that that would have to be it. Yeah, it's something that. It's it's in the first chapter. It's not like you get nine chapters mm. into the metaphorical um, discovery of the philosophy. Yeah. It's like no, it's the first chapter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the second chapter. Mm. It's the third chapter, fourth chapter. Every yeah. chapter gets back to this core concept. Yeah, and and I think in this mindfulness um, rage that we're that we're in right now, mm. Mm. there's something so beautiful about the equipments that were given and a distinction in those equipments. Yeah. Do you mind talking about those uh, different equipments that were given internally and in really just the three equipments were yeah. given that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, every human being is a body, which is a vehicle, the physical thing that we see in front of us. It's a vehicle. I pause and repeat it because it's a really a profound idea. They're worth stopping and thinking about if, if someone's listening to this. It's a vehicle. We, we get so involved in our bodies that I am my body. You know, whatever happens in my body happens to me. Vedanta says, no, your body's a vehicle. You would never say, I am my car, I hope, you know. But you would take care of your car if you're smart. You would respect your car. You would get the oil changed. You would do what you need to do to maintain it and, and use it as best as possible. At the same time, understanding it's my vehicle. So the body's a vehicle to move us around, to have the experiences we are here to have in life. By move us around, it means that inner personality which you were talking about. The inner personality has two equipments. So one is the irrational uh, seat of emotion, seat of feelings, 
likes and dislikes, impulses, desires, all the flowy stuff, that's called the mind in Vedanta, which can be a bit troubling in terms of Western translation, but you can take it as the heart. In Sanskrit, it's manas. The other equipment in us, which is a separate equipment, it's not just like there's two types of things. In Vedanta, it's very clear throughout the, the Upanishads, the Gita, the entire tradition, he talks about manas, uh, the heart, the mind, the heart, and another equipment, the intellect, which is the ability to think, to reason, to judge, to decide. It's the rational side of us. In Sanskrit, this is called buddhi. So that there are these two equipments. One is the ra- irrational, one is the rational. One is emotions, feelings, likes and dislikes. The other is the ability to reason, to think, to judge, to decide. So these are the, the two equipments that we have. And it's not about uh, neglecting the mind and neglecting the heart and not having feelings and not having emotions. It's not about that. It's about governing it. So Vedanta says a human being is built to function from the intellect, to have the intellect guide the personality, not in a, in a professorial way, not in the IQ kind of way, not in, we're not built to be competing with computers and remember how much, how much we can remember. That's not it. But the ability to actually drive our life, the ability to steer our life, the ability to choose our actions, like you were saying earlier, not just blindly go through life. The ability to guide our life is given to a human being uniquely to choose. Do I want to be a vegetarian or non-vegetarian? For example, no animal has that thought. No animal can have that thought. Their plan, their program, they do what they can do. A plant doesn't even, has barely any feelings. So a human being is is the ultimate, uh, the chef d'oeuvre of creation, as Swami says all the time, uh, because of the human intellect. So when we have the intellect functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning, guiding our personalities, we are living by choice, not by chance. This is the idea. We're not just going along with it, right? So, in fact, uh, we should not be talking so much about mindfulness. We should be talking about intellectfulness. If we, if we have a mission, we should change it to get, that, to get that word out there into the world. Because once you know that you have these two equipments in you, mind and intellect, and that this is the nature of the mind and this is the nature of the intellect, and you understand what they are, you'll realize, I should keep my intellect in the game at least. I should keep my reason and, ch- and choice and conscious action engaged and not just go along with the mind because you'll just end up wherever the mind takes you. So just to, 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 to f- sort of sum it up with the classical example, the entire inner personality is compared to a river. So the water flowing in the river is the mind. Water by itself has no form, has no dimension, has no direction, has no purpose. It, it's flowy. It, it's just not what it is. It doesn't have that. It needs strong banks to guide it. To guide it. Not to crush it. Not to kill it. But to guide it. So a healthy inner personality is like a river with strong banks. Right. Versus if you have weak banks, what happens? The river destroys the banks, floods everything around it, destroys everything it comes into contact with, gets all polluted, stagnates, doesn't reach its goal. So a, a river flowing with strong banks, the water is like the mind, the intellect is the banks. Vedanta, yoga for your intellect, this whole process is all about strengthening the intellect so that we have a, a well-governed life leading all the way up to that final stage of meditation at the end of the spiritual path where we're able to hold the, the personality in extreme ultra-focus with the intellect, with the buddhi. And a person who has literally thought-by-thought self-management, is a buddha. And in the vein of of writing things down and taking, I think that's the third takeaway from uh, this this conversation, is running a life where you're just succumbing to whatever likes and dislikes come up, whatever comfort. I mean, that is the modern world, is trying to just see, how can I make you more comfortable and get Mm -hmm. 30 Mm -hmm. bucks a month from you? Mm -hmm. And... And by doing that, you're eroding the banks of your own river. And it is a, to fortify it, you invest in the banks. And it is this knowledge nuclear bomb that that I was talking about where you hear it, and you're like, okay, there's two things. 
going mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. inside of me that I mm-hmm. that I can negotiate with. Mm-hmm. And by just going into a passionate like or dislike, doing what's comfortable, there is some cost that's happening. And by investing it, by saying, <clears throat> by saying, you know, I'm actually gonna, and I, you know, that I love technology. Mm. We need, we do need a new car. <laughs> but I was like, no, I'm gonna wait yeah. until a certain milestone is hit before yeah. buying a new car. For it's gonna end up being three years from when I mm. set that milestone, and that's, it is this investment in okay, this discipline around. I'm, I don't want to be. I do not want, and it's a, such a silly example, but mm. I do not want to be just taken for a ride <clears throat> off of these likes and dislikes. Yeah. I want to put some guardrails around them. Mm. And it, that's a, again, silly example, but it's a perfect example. I mean, it's even brushing my teeth. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that, mm-hmm. where there's a Vedantic way of brushing your teeth. Yeah. Or eating I, food or, or anything eating else. Food. Yeah. I always want to peace out after a minute, yeah. minute, 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Because the mind is like, I, I'm already a little late. I want, 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 whatever it is. I don't like this. I don't like this. I want to get to this. Uh, I wanted to sleep in. And it is just this tiny, silly example mm. where you end up with cavities and gum grafts mm. because every morning yeah. you are ruled more by uh, the mind than, okay, I'm going to actually put in the two minutes. Yeah, so I'm glad you highlight likes and dislikes because one of the best definitions of the mind, of that equipment in us, is likes and dislikes. It, it's called the, the the so so in the Gita he calls it the your enemy, nitya vairin. In the Bhagavad Gita he describes likes and dislikes as nitya means eternal, vairin means enemy. These are your eternal enemy. Your likes and dislikes. And as you rightly said at the beginning, the whole society is all gauged towards finding your likes and dislikes and and encouraging them. I mean, literally, like it. Right. Like my my episode. Like our video. It's it, The whole thing is about likes and dislikes, which is absolutely counter to what Vedanta is saying. How people raise children. All of it. You like it? Take it. Destroy them. Right. Literally destroying them. So the people who can who can afford to give whatever they, the children like, they find their children are become in real trouble later on in life. They become vegetables or rebels, or to the point where they don't they don't they don't want to even listen to their parents. Whatever it is, we encourage likes and dislikes to our detriment. And society is all about encouraging likes and dislikes, as you rightly say, for the purposes of of making money. And it's just not what. Um, it's not how Vedanta advises us to live. It advises us to live uh, free of that. Well, if you all uh, have have enjoyed, I'm not going to say liked. <laughs> if people have enjoyed this episode. I'm not even going to say like the episode. Um, like and subscribe, as the TikTokers would say. I'm not going to say that. But what I am going to say is join us for conversation number two. Yeah. And, uh, I'm enjoying this so far, so I'm looking forward to conversation number two, Justin. Me too, man. Let's do it. Woo! That episode was fantastic. And if you are digging yoga for your intellect and want to introduce this philosophy to your coworkers and your team, well, Joseph and I are down to come visit basically an in-person YFYI come visit with you and your team. In the same way that you might invite a yoga instructor for a team building event, we're willing to come to your office and talk to your team as well. We can do it over Zoom as well. It is, uh, it's whatever makes sense, but uh, we're even down to do it in person. And that is just in line with the mission of making this philosophy available and accessible to all those that seek it. Joseph and I would love to come talk with you and your team about yoga for your intellect and that really comes from my perspective of running businesses for the last 15 years and just knowing, man, it was about 10 years ago, I was running a 50 person company, led to a trip to the ER, I was drinking seven cups of coffee a day to try to stay on top of everything, um, trip to the ER with a heart condition, 
needless to say, it was a very, very stressful, extremely stressful time in life. And that business ultimately failed. And 10 years later, I sit here and get to have these conversations with with Joseph while running two companies and and a venture fund. Each day just feels like it's a hot knife through butter. I have not had a single day of stress in the last six, seven years of building multiple companies and, and multiple venture funds. It's truly remarkable, and I know that it's not me or the businesses that are different than 10 years ago, but it's my approach to each day and quite literally to the start to the day because every day starts with this philosophy for me and we want to share it with your team. For me, it feels like an obligation of sorts and a loud siren saying that teams and companies around the globe need to hear this. So if you're interested, email us at, this is the key thing, email us at yoga for your intellect at gmail.com. That's yoga for your intellect at gmail.com. Use the email address in the show notes, and we would love to come chat with you and your team.